when we think about this topic, the topic of unity. Um, it's something I think we know is something that we, we know is a good thing. Unity in the church, unity in our communities, unity in our families. But something actually sometimes we don't always experience. And just reflecting on, on kind of the, uh, the Remembrance 100, 100 celebrations and the work that's been done in leading up. I don't know how many of you know, but about 100 days ago, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury and a number of church organizations unified and made a decision to pray for the 100 days preceding to this day which started on the 4th of August 2018, to commemorate and, and bring about a sense again of unity between the churches, unity of the gospel, and unity to, to remind ourselves that we are people who to be people of reconciliation. And um, yeah, this is just one of the, the, the posters from, from that um, kind of um, campaign, uh, which ends today. But it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because many of us have been in churches where... Uh, You've experienced wonderful unity, and you kind of tasted what it looks like to be almost like one with each other, it, like in purpose and in meaning and in, in the things that you do. But I'm sure some of us also have been in communities and situations where you've experienced disunity and the pain and the hardship and the, uh, the hurt that disunity uh, causes in our communities. And when we look at this passage in Philippians, we're in uh, Philippians 2, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Um, church unity is, is at the heart of what Paul wants to speak into the Philippian church. This, uh, and also, he wants to speak into our lives. Um, so I want to start just with, a, with an interesting illustration, if that's okay. Um, does anybody know why football teams are called United? You have a few football teams out there, Arsenal, who are you know, one of the best football teams in the world. Um, Barcelona, they're not called Barcelona United, they're not called Arsenal United, they're called Arsenal Football Club or Barcelona FC. Um, but you've got a few weird teams out there, uh, some in Manchester, some in Leeds. Uh, any Manchester United fans here? Okay, one, one. <laughs> any City fans here? Okay, you guys. Um, so, so, you know, there's, there's, I, I was asked, I Googled the question, why the football teams called themselves United. Um, and there's three reasons which Google gave me. Obviously, Google knows everything. Firstly, it's because probably there were once maybe three, two teams which decided to join together. So they thought, what should we call ourselves? Uh, let's call ourselves United. Ah, good idea. Great lads, let's get and play football. So two teams coming together to become one. Um, the second reason why football teams are called United was because other names were taken. So Manchester City, for example, was there before there was Manchester United. So all, I don't know if you know, there's a big rivalry between Manchester City and Manchester United. Who's better, who's, one was better at one point in time in the 90s, now the other one is streaming ahead in the Premier League uh, called Manchester United, uh, called Manchester City. But Manchester United basically got the second, the second pick of the names. They couldn't call themselves uh, Manchester Football Club because it was taken. And the third reason why some football teams apparently call themselves United is because they want to get sponsorship money. Um, it's not a good name to call yourself Losers FC, is it? But if you're called United FC, that's a good marketing brand. And actually, this is a true story, there is actually a club in the Indian uh, I Division 2, uh, and they were called Ever Ready Association. 
uh, but they renamed themselves United FC solely to attract sponsorship money. There we go. So we know the importance of names, and we know the importance of what it means to have a brand. But I, I share these, these stories because so often in the church, um, being united is something that we know is a good thing. Um, and common to football, we want to have a common goal, don't we? What unites football teams together is the fact that they want to be the best team. They want to have the best supporters. They want to be united as a collection of different people who support that one team. And in many ways in the church, we're also called to be united, but in a slightly different way, with slightly different motivations and so much more glory than what football teams can give us. Um, you don't have to look too far in our kind of news and press to see that unity in the church isn't very much celebrated. Um, when I searched it on BBC, it didn't really come up very much. But when you search disunity, it pops up all, it seems to pop up quite a lot of times, doesn't it? We hear about um, disunity over many issues, doctrine, um, approaches to ministry, um, roles, uh, different ways in which people want to do church, different values, which they seem as more important than others. And it's really not surprising that disunity exists in the church because when you think about the church, the church is one of the most diverse, multicultural, um, international, global, um, ver- the most variety of different, con- of different people from different nations. We're a whole mixture of different people from different backgrounds, different walks of life, called to come together under one banner, which is Jesus Christ, and expected to get along. Now, I'm sure many of you have kind of see the value of unity, but have you asked, ever asked the question, is unity truly, truly possible in the church? Is it really, really, truly possible? Because we see it every day, it's not possible. It doesn't seem like it's possible in many ways. But let me just share this one thing from John 17. Jesus prayed for unity. He prayed for unity. He said in John 17, 21, we may be one, that we would be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So the unity that God wants his church to have is the kind of the same unity as he has with his Father in heaven. The Son is united with the Father and the Spirit. He calls us as a people, as a church, as his body, to also be one. In John 17, it also says what's at stake Our unity has something that's really important, and it's this. John 17, John says this. uh, uh, Jesus says this in John. Jesus prays that we may be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world would believe that God has sent Jesus Christ. Unity is important because it represents what the gospel is. The message of Christ, the message of Jesus, hangs on how we live out. Unity is important because it shows the power of the gospel to take people from every nation, every people group, every tribe, every language, uniting them under one banner, which is Jesus Christ. And when the church is disunited, what it does, it shows something less of what the gospel is supposed to represent in our lives. And Paul expresses this in Philippians by saying this. Uh, Helen wonderfully covered uh, chapter, parts of chapter one last week, and go and look on the podcast if you want to catch up. But he says this word, these words here. We are to live lives worthy of the gospel. 
Paul appeals to us that we are to live worth, lives worthy of the gospel. That means the gospel, the good news of Jesus, uh, is spoken and we receive it. And we're supposed to live in a certain way now because of what the gospel has done for us. And one of those things that Paul mentions here in, in, in living out a life uh, for worthy of the gospel is that he appeals to the Philippian church for unity, to be one. And he uses the words one mind, one spirit, uh, one Lord, and things like that to show that the church is supposed to be united in one. So if we're called to be united, if we're called to be uh, one body, Jesus prays for it. Paul says it in his letters. The gospel matters because of that. How are we as Forest Town Church now supposed to live that out? Are we just supposed to get on with each other, hang out, go to men's breakfasts, go to women's ministry, uh, go to Winter Wonderland? Is that the kind of things that we should be doing to build unity? Yes, I would say. There's one of the things, those important things that we should do is to build relationships with each other. But there's something much deeper that Paul wants to give us through the book of Philippians, through this part of Scripture. And he wants to give us, firstly, a motivation for unity. He wants to give us a gospel motivation for unity. He wants us to have an attitude that builds unity. He also wants us to have a way we live our lives that would build unity. And those are really the three main points I want to give us this morning. That unity, Christian unity, is possible. Not because we are all the same. Not because we all support Arsenal, not because we all uh, are somehow in the same socio-economic class and drive, or can drive here, or whatever it is that we have. We all have the same abilities, the same likes, the same music tastes. No, unity for the church is bought because we are motivated by the gospel, because we have a new attitude in Christ, and because we are freed to live for others. And that's really what Paul highlights. So if you turn to Philippians 2, uh, that was my introduction. I just want to read this. But before that, can I just pray? Because what I pray God would do in us this morning is something that only he can do. We can invite you to be, I can say, be unified, but only the Holy Spirit can make that true in our lives. Let's pray before we read, shall we? Father God, thank you that you are the God who reconciles us to yourself. You are the God who has come down from heaven and not kept himself away, but you came near to us. And I pray, Lord God, as we experience, Lord God, the life-giving truth of the gospel this morning, that we would be changed, that we would be people, a church that is united on the one banner, which is Jesus Christ. May we know, Lord, the power of your Holy Spirit speaking through your word this morning, and may we respond, Lord God, in a way that honors and brings glory to your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn to uh, Philippians 2, or you can look at the screen, and we're just going to read verses 1 to 4. So Paul says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Wow, it's a lot packed in to just four verses. But hopefully, um, the first thing I want to bring to you this morning is that our motivation for being united as a church, but being, having Christian unity, is firstly because of the good news of Jesus. We're motivated purely, firstly, by the gospel. 
And by that, what I mean is that each of us who call Jesus our Lord, who has received him, have experienced something of the reality of the good news. And Paul lists out here five things um, that, that, uh, that are experiences that each of us has. If we have experienced and tasted that the Lord is good, that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, we would experience some of these things. And he calls the first one encouragement in Christ. Encouragement in Christ. And I just want you to think about these things. Are these the realities that you are uh, experiencing and feeding on every single day of your lives? Are you experiencing the encouragement of Christ daily in your walk with him? And the word uh, that Paul uses here is, is for encouragement is, is para... Let me, all the Greeks out there are going to give me a hard time. Uh, it's paraklesis, which is the word... And it's used to describe the Holy Spirit, paraklete, the one who comes alongside us. And that's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Christ is not the, uh, uh, the God who has stayed in heaven and says, people, be unified, be, to be together as a people and do things. He's not the God who kind of commands from heaven. He's the God who came down and showed us what that looked like. He's the one who came alongside the brokenhearted, who came alongside those who were hurt and in, in, in death and in, uh, in brokenness and came alongside us. And I wonder if you are a person who's experienced that same kind of encouragement from Christ. I know that Jesus uses this wonderful picture in, in, in Luke when he describes the, the Good Samaritan. There was a man who walked from, um, from Jericho and he was attacked by a band of robbers. And Jesus uses this picture and he says that a lot of other people walked past this man who was almost like at death's door, broken and beaten and stolen from. And the most unlikely person came along and became paracletus to this person, this good Samaritan, somebody who through their, um, their socio-class and their uh, political status should not have been the person who should have helped this other man, but somebody who was an enemy of this man according to the world's eyes, became paracletus to this man and took him alongside, took him to an inn, bound up his wounds, gave encouragement and comfort to this man who was beaten. And that is the experience that each of us should have experienced in Christ. We've experienced the comfort, the kindness of God, and we are now called to be the same to each other. That is what the gospel does. It takes what is true and what we've received, but doesn't keep it here it then sends it out to those around us. So first one, the gospel motivation is paraclesis. God has encouraged us. The second one Paul mentions here is comfort, comfort from love. Um, our God is a God of all comfort. This year, our family has experienced some, some loss in, in our family, and the comfort that we have received from God has been immense. The hope that we have through knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and that there is not an end, but there is a hope and a future transforms how we should live in this life and transforms how we have received the comfort of God in our troubles so that we can also then comfort those who are in any troubles because we have received it from God first. That's from 2 Corinthians 1.14. How many of you here experienced the comfort of God in a precious, beautiful way? You've experienced the love of God, and that then transforms your view of how you can then help and comfort other people around you in a, unita- in a unified Christian community. The third experience that we all should have experienced as Christians is the participation of the Spirit. 
And another word that Paul, we could interpret that is, as, is fellowship of the Spirit. I know that a few uh, weeks ago, we had a guest speaker called Wayne Neupa, and he talked about the Holy Spirit nudging us, the Holy Spirit, God's presence right in us, nudging, encouraging, directing our lives, being our friend, being our comforter. And the word Paul uses here is konoia, konoinia, which is this word he uses for participation or partnership. God partners with us in our lives, and we also are called to partner with each other. The fourth motivation that Paul leads us to is affection and sympathy. And I coined these two together because um, the words that Paul uses here, again in Greek, is, is a word that, 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 that is not just affection, like I like you, you like me, but actually it's called a deep affection. It's the word that he uses is that it comes from the bowels. It comes from deep within here. One of how many of you have experienced um, that love where you know someone has loved you, not from their mind or just, you know, through their actions, but they've loved you from a deep, deep, deep place. And that's the kind of love that God has lavished on you. God lavishes his deep affection for you, affections and mercy upon your lives, affection and sympathy. And we too, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, are called to live out with compassionate hearts, the same Greek words, affection and mercy to each other. So all of this I'm saying is that the motivation that comes for Christianity comes through experiencing the good news of Jesus, experiencing it daily, experiencing it in a true reality. He says these things not only just for us to receive them, but he also calls us to receive them and to live them out to each other. And the very last thing I want to say on this motivation is that we're motivated by joy. Imagine if we weren't motivated by joy in a Christian life. Imagine if we told you to do all these things and you know, give your money, uh, support these ministries, go to a hog roast, uh, go to all these things, but there was no joy in any of it. Can you imagine? Would you be motivated to go to any of these things if there was no joy in it? But one of the things that the gospel is all about is all about our joy. It's all about experiencing something that this world could never, ever give us. And Paul uses the word completing my joy uh, to, to kind of summarize one of these motivations. We've experienced from God something amazing. Compassion, encouragement, comfort, participation of the Spirit, affection and mercy and joy. And all of these things are then called to uh, call us to live out uh, in the same way to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to those around us. Are you experiencing these realities daily in your life? Are you choosing to uh, soak yourself in the glory of the gospel so that when, uh, when we're called to live at unity, it doesn't come from a place of, of, of dryness, but it comes from a place of overflowing out of the amazing gifts that God has given to your lives? What does this mean practically for us as Forest Town Church? It means that the gospel has to take root in your lives daily. It means we have to be in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. We have to know and hear his nudge. It means that we have to know each other. It means that to experience affection and mercy towards each other, we have to know each other. I have to know you. You have to know me. And some of us, maybe that, that's a hard thing on a Sunday morning. And maybe Sunday mornings isn't the best place because it's sometimes quite busy and things. But we have to find a place where we get to know each other from a deeper place because that's what God has experienced to us. And we are called to experience together. 
Maybe that's in a home group. Uh, if you're not in a home group, um, go find out where one is near you because that's a place where you can build in a place of smaller community and get to know each other in a deeper way. Um, but it's our choice. Will we choose then to receive these gospel gifts, these gospel realities, and then choose to live them out to each other? That's the first thing. Our motivation comes through the gospel. God has done everything for life and godliness for us to live out. But Paul also calls us not only to have a motivation, but also to have a renewed mindset. If we read from uh, verse, uh, verse 3, it says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility uh, count others more significant than yourselves. You know, there are certain mindsets that we can have in a community that will either build or will destroy. And Paul mentions two things here that will certainly destroy a community. And he mentions one thing that will certainly build a community. We're called to be of the same mind, same love, same accord. But he also warns us, firstly, against selfish ambition and vain conceit. So when we take the first one, uh, selfish ambition, really what I'm talking about is, is self-interest, um, placing yourself, I, me, uh, in a place where that takes priority over the good of the community. Um, and it's really hard, really, to sometimes edge these things out because self-interest, uh, if I asked you, any of you here um, selfish and, and have self-ambition, I don't think anyone here will probably want to raise their hands because in many ways, it's, it's, we know it's something that is not in keeping with the gospel, but yet the whole world around us enforces and teaches us and, and says that you are the center of this universe. You matter more. And we have to recognize that in this world, we're experiencing that. But in the church, we're called to something even greater. We're called to something um, that doesn't place us first. God places the body first. And that's a good question. When we come to church on a Sunday morning, is our attitude a, a me-first-centered attitude? Or are we freed and are we able to ask the question, what would be best for the body today? What would be best for the body, for you, for this person here? What can I do today that would be best for you rather than coming with an attitude of me Yes, we have needs, and I'm not knocking any of that. We come here as a community to help and serve each other. But more often than not, is our attitude one of self-interest and self-centeredness versus other interest? And it's a good question we have to ask ourselves. The second thing that destroys unity is, is conceit. Um, and conceit is, is, is a strange term, um, but it, it essentially comes out in, in the sense of pride, so things that will destroy a community, unity in the community, is, is pride. And uh, the word conceit actually means empty pride or vain pride. There is a thing called good pride. If you've done a good job, if, you've, uh, if somebody here is serving tea and coffee, um, we say, great, well done, thank you so much. And there's a good thing in terms of when we celebrate other people. But there's also an empty pride, a pride that says, I am better than you I'm doing a better job than you, and obviously that makes means me, that means that I am better. It's a pride that pushes other people down so that I will lift myself up. That's the kind of picture that, that Paul wants to paint for us. Somebody who 
lifts themselves up at the expense of pushing other people down. And, I, and that's the kind of pride we have to really guard against because, again, it's so subtle. And many of, not many of you here would probably put up their hands and say, yep, that's me, you've described me perfectly. But in a church community, we have to be so careful of these things because they don't obviously start as, wow, that guy's prideful. They start from something small, takes root, and grows in our lives. And for me, you know, it's something that, that I have to confess that so often in my uh, life in, in church, I've been a person who has let pride take root in my heart. And over time, it's grown into something that has you know, taken over and, and affected my thinking, my ministry, my, my service. And just an example, in my, in my previous church, there was a time when I used to lead worship quite a lot, and uh, people would give me really good feedback, and I'd be like, hey, that's, that sounds pretty good, that feels pretty good. And then it started affecting my song choice. Will they like me? Will I, am I singing the songs that everyone would want to hear so that I get more glory? And, you know, God has to do a work in you to root out that pride. But what Paul calls us here to is a life not of pride, but a life that is different. In this church, if you've been part of this church for any time, you might know that we have certain values. And one of them is servant-heartedness. Um, Many of us here are wonderful doers. I think, what was the number? I think 90%? 80 to 90% of us are serving in some capacity in this community. Uh, and that is amazing because it shows something of the culture of this church. But one of the things I want to really guard you against and, and, and encourage you against is, is even though we are doing many things with our hands and doing many things with our money and our tithings for that, one of the things I want to guard you against is, is pride and, and vain conceit because it often starts coming in through um, things like bitterness. Oh, I'm serving today. Oh, those people aren't helping. Why don't they help as well? Can't they see I'm scrubbing the floors and they're just chatting away and having coffee? I, I've had those thoughts, I confess. Or maybe... Man, why'd you pick that song? I could do so much better. He's got such a soft voice. He needs more energy. No, Matt, you did a great job, not knocking you. I'm just saying that. <laughs> you know, do you know how it can be so subtle, can't it? It starts with a small thing. We feed it, and it becomes something that disunifies us. It robs our joy of seeing other people serve. It robs our joy of being able to serve each other. And that's something I don't want for Forest Town Church. I want us to root out pride at the source so that it frees us to have joy in service. If, you're, if you've been asked to serve or you've given yourself to serving in this church, don't do it out of a grudging heart. Please don't do it out of a grudging heart. Do it out of servant-heartedness. Do it out of a place where the source of your service comes from the wellspring of the gospel. God has served you. You serve out of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ and for his glory, not out of grinding determination or anything like that. Yeah? Let's examine our hearts always when we come to serve. But he doesn't leave us, Paul doesn't just leave us with things that we shouldn't do. He gives us one irresistible attitude that will build community and build our unity, and that's humility. Let's read it from uh, Philippians 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, that's the key word, humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
C.S. Lewis describes humility as this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, rather thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, rather thinking of yourself less. Each one of you here is, is precious. Each one of you here is loved, valued. That is what the gospel has given you. We've read it already at the very first chapter, verse of this chapter. You have received love from God. You've received encouragement. You've received participation in the spirit. You've received affection, sympathy from our Father in heaven. You've received joy. But that isn't just for you to buff yourself up. It's there to bring you to a place where you go, wow, I don't have to think about myself that much anymore. God has thought of me already, and I get to think of other people. That is what the gospel does. It's a humble person is secure in who they are in Jesus Christ, because then it frees them to live for others. A humble person sees the value of other people because they have received ultimate value from their creator already. A humble person remains teachable and approachable because they have received the wisdom of Christ. A humble person remains willing to be corrected, but also to speak the truth in love to those around them. A humble person is able to be other-orientated because they have seen their God do that for them. That is why we preach the gospel in this place. That's why we continue to encourage you to rest in the gospel because that is our source for humility. Paul isn't saying that we have to pretend to be less than anybody or to be the doormat that everyone stands upon. Do you know that um, before Jesus Christ came, the word unity, uh, so the word humility was used as a derogatory term. It was used for people like servants, slaves, um, people who were below you. But Christ has redeemed the word humility because he demonstrated what humility is. And now we see humility no longer as a derogatory term, but as a virtue in which we aspire to, because that is what Christ has demonstrated to you and I. So let's hold that value high. Let's hold humility high in its where it should be, because that is what Christ is, and that is who he is, and who he calls us to be. Let's recognize and value those around us, lifting other people up. And if that means we get a bit lower, so be it, because that's what Christ did for us. And the last thing that God gives us and what Paul gives us in this passage, he's given us a motivation for unity. He's given us an attitude for, to build unity. He's also given us a way to live. In verse 4, it says, Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Can you imagine what it would be like if this community uh, truly was uh, every one of us, sorry, I don't mean it in like we're not, but everyone, every single person in the community was motivated by the gospel. If every single person in the community was, had an attitude of humility before each other, can you imagine what kind of community that would build? Can you imagine what kind of people we would look like to the world outside? Can you imagine what it says here, that if each person looked not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others around them, can you imagine what the world would see? They would see a people on fire. They would see a people of glory. Because that's not what the world sees. That's not what the world gives you. The world says, me, 
and maybe you get a taste of humility every now and then, but a people, a people group of every nation, every tribe, every language, no longer divided, but unified because of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what that would look like to the world? The picture that the world sees would be one of glory, an irresistible community that freely lives for the good of others. So my cry for Forest Town Church this morning is that, are you in for this? Is this what your heart longs for? Is this what you see as your calling on your life to each other? To value and to lift up each other. To live not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. There are hundreds and thousands of ways in which that might look for you. I'm not going to mention them all because that would take days, weeks, months. Search scripture. Look at the Bible. Look at how people live this truth out. Look at how uh, people lay down their lives for each other for the sake of Jesus Christ and the joy of each other. Actually, we're going to be doing that in, in Philippians in the next kind of two weeks because we're going to next look at Jesus, how he did that. But then we're also going to be looking at how um, Timothy and, and uh, Ephroditus did that as well in, in this study of Philippians. But can I just pray for you now as a church? Can I just pray for myself as well? Because part of being part of this community in Forest Town, if that you've committed to being part of this place, this community, I pray that you would be also committed to its unity. I pray that you would also be committed to each other, to uphold each other, to humble yourself, to serve each other in a way that's motivated by the gospel with an attitude of humility. So Father, I pray that as I've been speaking this morning, that you might have awakened areas in our lives, Lord God, where we have harbored um, disunity in our lives. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the, the life giver. You are the joy giver. You are the unity giver. And we don't want to be united, Lord God, just because we like the same things or we like the same taste of music or we like the worship or we like the coffee. We want to be united because of a deep, deep affection for you and a deep affection for each other. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would birth that in our community right now. That there is no place for pride. Lord, I pray that we would cry out, Lord God, for the unity of the church globally. Because what it matters, Lord, it matters what the world sees of us. For your glory, Lord, we pray that we would be a church that is united in St. Albans, Hertfordshire, the greater London, the UK, Europe, the world. May your church be the beautiful bride that you have called. I want to invite you to stand. If your desire is to be united as a people in this place, Forest Town Church, if you've called this place your home, I invite you to stand if you are in. If you know that this word is for you, that you need, you want to see this unity lived out in our congregation, in this congregation here, would you stand with me? And we're going to just lift our hands. We're going to ask God to do a work of the gospel in our lives, to rend out any place of pride, to change our attitudes change our motivations if they need changing and to also change our actions to live out for each other so god i thank you for the great gospel 
I thank you first and foremost, Jesus, that you died to free us from Satan, to free us from sin, to free us from death. But you didn't just leave us there. You equipped us, Lord, for acts of service. And I pray, Lord God, that we would be a church that is motivated purely by the gospel, the good news that we've received. Lord, I pray against any other motivation, Lord God, that would have taken root in our hearts. The pleasing of man, the praise of people. And I pray, Lord God, that you would transform also our attitudes and we confess, Lord, where we have acted pridefully. We say sorry, Lord God, for robbing you of your glory and raising up our own glory. And we thank you, Lord God, for the gift of humility. Holy Spirit, would you just birth that in us right now? Fill us afresh, we pray, with the gift of humility to choose others before ourselves. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.